You're listening to a sermon from Emmaus City Church, located in Worcester, Massachusetts. We seek to walk in union with Jesus and share his good news with our community. Thank you so much, Dave, for the reading and the praying over our our message today, and we're going to be expounding on Psalm 127. The title of our message is The Master Master Builder. The Master Builder. And I'm I'm excited about this particular topic. I'm almost always excited, you know. I mean, anytime we... We, we, I get to come up and, and just, I know, Aaron's laughing. He's thinking, that's the first, oh, you can almost predict what I'm going to say the first couple, two or three lines, you know. Well, I'm glad you're somewhere. Yeah, I am, I am, I am. <laughs> and, uh, but we'll definitely dive into Psalm 127. It's a powerful text, uh, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible, Psalm 127. Let me tell you a story. In December of 1892, Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen produced a play called The Master Builder. It's regarded as one of the most significant and revealing works. The plot begins with Harvard Solness, who is a middle-aged master builder of a small town in Norway who has become a successful architect of great distinction and great reputation. One day he's visited by Hilda Wengel, a young woman of 23. Hilda reminds Solness that they are not strangers, that they had previously met in her hometown when she was 13 years old. When Solness does not respond immediately, she reminds him at one point during their encounter, he had made advances to her, had offered her a romantic interlude and promised her a kingdom, all of which she believed. He denies this. But, but she gradually convinces him that she can assist him with his household duties. And so he, he, he invites her and he has her come into his home. And, 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 and granted, which Solness is also the manager of an architectural office with employees who work for him. And he has a complicated relationship with his wife, Aline, of which lost two children in a fire some, uh, some years before. And it's during this time that Solness builds a closer tie with Hilda while she is in his home, and she supports his architectural vocations and new projects. But one day during the construction of his most recent project, which includes a towering steeple, Hilda learns that Solness suffers from acrophobia, a morbid fear of, 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 of heights. Nevertheless, she encourages him to climb to the top of this public open, to climb to the top of the steeple of this newly completed building. And and so Solness, inspired by her words, achieves to the top of this tower when suddenly he loses his footing and crashes to his end on the ground. And and, and among and before the spectators who have arrived for the opening of the new new building, I guess, as the spectators saw this ending, right, of, of Solness crashing to the ground, the spectators were there, they were aghast. But in the midst of what was going on, Hilda is the only one that comes forward as if in silent triumph. And she waves her shawl and cries out with this wild intensity, my, my master builder. 
Crazy story, right? Uh, yeah, it is weird. How's that for a word of encouragement? Can we take up an offering now? Right? You know, like, it's, this is a terrible story, right? And uh, but, but it got your attention. And uh, so the plot and the purpose of this play is definitely up for, up for debate. One interpretation is that it tells the story of a middle-aged professional man who becomes infatuated with a younger teasing woman. Or it tells the story, right, the tragedy of an architect who falls off his scaffold while trying to show off in front of a young lady. Uh, on the other hand, I, I wonder if there's this kind of inner conflict that, that takes place within soulness because there seems to be this acknowledgement that his gift to build and to create has, has come from God. And so I wonder if in some ways he was wrestling with his desire to use his ability, right, for God's purposes while desiring to give in to his own, his own ambition for building for self. And, 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 and I think this is, so this is inner conflict really mirrors the tension that many of us wrestle with today. That in our desire to build and to create wonderful enterprises, we lose ourselves. And, and, and we lose our souls in the process. And here lies what may be the greatest tragedy in the master builder play. is soulness losing his soul in the clouds of his ambition. Right? And, and let me preface this by saying there's nothing necessarily wrong with desiring to do great things. We, we all want to be great. I don't want to be, but I want to be great. We want to, we, when we build, we look like God. We, we reflect his image when we, when we build. We are called to produce, to be fruitful, to be, to create. Uh, just the other night, my daughter, uh, Michaela, was, she likes to write books. She likes to put books together. She's a writer and she likes to draw and write books and, and it's just amazing narratives that she puts together. And one night she was asking me over and over again, Daddy, are you ready basically to, to hear my, 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 what I wrote? And when I put her to bed, I decided I'd slow down a little bit, right? And I, and I, I decided I'd take out time to really hear her, her story. And, and immediately, I'm, I'm already thinking, I got to get on to the next thing. You know, I got to rush and get everyone in bed, you know, so I can get some rest. But I decided to take out time to really hear her story. And the more I started listening to it, it's like the more and more I did not want her to stop. But, you know, it was so amazing. And she was proud of this product that she produced. Right. She, she's she's proud of that. And when I was a kid. Right. You know, I was I was really fascinated by Legos, at least to some degree. And I remember seeing the I, I remember getting these Legos and just it's just amazing how you can use these Legos and produce cars and, and airplanes. And, and it's just amazing. And what you see in the commercial thing, I want these Legos because when they get home, I'm expecting to be able to do the same thing. And so you get home, and I'm, you know, you mess with my legs. You begin to realize it's a little harder, right? You know, it's so much easier on television. It's a little harder at home. It's like the only thing I could build with these Legos was a towering, like a tower that would come, like maybe fat, falling down. For me, playing with Legos is more like playing with dominoes. But, but, but even as kids, right? You see, even as in kids, this desire to create. This desire to make something. 
Uh, but even in children, we're build, when we're building structures from Legos, we're reflecting, right, a characteristic of God's image who was and is the master builder. builder. To build is to construct and to erect meaning to a structure. To, to build is, is, is used for putting together several parts or materials to form something. We see in Genesis, God not just building, but God actually creating the world. Man can build, but only God in, in, his, in the purest sense can actually, can actually create. To build is to, is to take materials that exist, out of, you know, to take to already materials that already exist and, and form something, but, but to create is to make something out of nothing. And we understand that to be true when we use the word ex nihilo, that has to do with God forming something, creating something out of, out of nothing. And he models what it means to create. And, and, and to build, and then he calls Adam to be fruitful and to multiply. By building a family of image bearers, God followers. We see in the very beginning God being the focal point of all of life and the meaning of all of life. So much so that even in our building, we are meant to glorify God. And to reflect his image as witnesses to, the all, to all the world of his excellence. We are therefore not wrong in desiring to be great, but what must come under my scrutiny, right? It's not so much the desire to be great, but the why behind why we want to be great. Our, our, our motivation. Because when we build to glorify God, we find ourselves, our true selves, but when we, when we build to glorify man or to glorify ourselves, we somehow lose ourselves. And a question for you that I have today is, have you lost yourself in your work? Uh, have, have you accomplished big things, but your soul grown so small that somehow along the way you've lost sight of what, of what really matters? And we see in Psalm chapter 127, we see the King Solomon talking about the family later on in, in that second uh, part, part of Psalm 127. And, and he talks about how, how blessed you are, right, when, you, when your quiver is filled with arrows. You're blessed. So in other words, you are rich. You are favored by God. The other day, I, a number of years ago, rather, I was laying down and I was thinking, man, I feel so rich. And I definitely did not have a lot of money in my bank account, but I just felt so rich because I had the respect of my wife, and I had the admiration and love of my kids. And I thought, man, I'm so blessed. But maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I don't have a family. You know, I don't have kids. But you can be rich in another way, right? There's so much you can do with your time to advance God's kingdom. You can be rich in good works and advance God's kingdom this way. But it is possible, right, to do great things, great works without God. And in our, in our Western consumer-driven selfie Facebook shrine society, right, you know, we might make the mistake even in, of, 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 of believing that success in ministry, even in the church, means having a mega church, right? And we think we're successful with lots of money pouring in and lots of butts in the chairs. And we're thinking, man, God has just, he's just blessed this ministry. And, and the scary part is, is that if we're not careful, God might look in this ministry and find himself saying, everybody else has a seat, but where's mine? You know, it's like, oh man, 
You know, it's like, you know, the place can be so full, but God actually not really have a seat. God not really be moving among us. Because we can be successful in ministry without him. And, and this is so true when the why behind what we do is not to be radically faithful and obedient to Jesus Christ. But rather, like the rich man said, I'll build bigger barns for myself. In it for myself. And when we look at Psalm 127 as a whole, and we look at this particular psalm, I don't know about you, but there have been points I've been looking, I've read Psalm 127, especially as of late. And I'm looking at Psalm 127, and I'm thinking, man, this, this almost sounds like Solomon's talking about two different topics here. Right. And when you look at the first few verses, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor in vain, labor, build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early, thinking all this makes sense and go to late, go, go late to rest. Eat in the bed of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. And this is behold, children. I'm like, OK, now this is, this is almost one. Is this supposed to be two separate songs? You know, this is. It almost like this doesn't quite, quite, quite make sense when we look at this particular text. And, but, but Solomon is not talking about two totally different things when he uses the word unless the Lord builds. Or another translation says unless the Lord establishes his house. Uh, that really it's all flowing together. And, and what Solomon is talking about is establishing the home, establishing the family, establishing your life. Usually when, when we think of the word build, or another translation use the word establish, we think of buildings, right? To, to build and to, to create and give us images of architecture, our, 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 our drawings of blueprint, of what is to be erected. But the word build or establish can be applied not only to the development of edifices, right? But to the building and the establishing of your life. Of, of, of your very life, to establish your life, to build your life, to raise your family, to build a marriage, to, to create a close bond, to establish a ministry or a 401k, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a nonprofit organization. Or maybe God has called you to create a nonprofit organization or God has called you to build a new curriculum or, or establish a new DNA group or a missional community. And these are different ways that we can build, that we can create for, for God's glory. But whatever it is, Psalm 127, whatever you endeavor, Whatever you feel like the Lord is calling you to do, Psalm 127 has direct application to your life. And, and Psalm 127 is a family song. The, the words, were, these particular words were people that, that weren't just memorized, they, they were sung. And, and, and this was an excellent way to memorize portions of scripture. So instead of just reciting the scriptures, the people of God would sing the scriptures. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, right, you know, during the time, and, and, and check this out, when I was growing up, we did not have cell phones and, and tablets that you could stream multimedia on, right, you know, what we did was this, we watched, check this out, get ready for this, we watched television, right, with, with two antennas, and you could go to this television and, and just turn the knob and, and it would change pictures, right? You know, that's what we watched. And when I was growing up, we didn't have access to cartoons 24-7, right? If I wanted to watch cartoons like the Jetsons or the Snorkels or the Smurfs, I had to wait till Saturday morning. 
right? You know, because on Saturday morning, that's when all the cartoons would come on for several few hours or in the evening when you came home after school. Maybe a little bit later toward the evening, you could watch the cartoons. And, and I remember watching the cartoons and seeing the commercials on Saturday mornings. Uh, most of the time, they would target kids. Could they do like the whole world in the U.S. If you were if you were a kid under the age of 13 on Saturday morning, you were watching cartoons. They knew that, so they would target us with these commercials. And the commercials I remember most were the ones that were short and had a really sweet, catchy beat. Right, like my buddy, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy, wherever I go, he goes. My buddy, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy and me. Kiss sister, kiss sister, kiss sister, kiss sister. Oh, you guys don't, man, this is a lame crowd. Oh, dude, you guys have me up here acting a fool. At least I got one witness. Thank you. Thank you. You know, you guys don't know anything about the 80s and 90s. And the word, the, the words in Psalm, thanks Kate, by the way, for real. The words in Psalm 127, right, with like the lyrics in a cool beat, short, sweet, and memorable. They were words to be sung. I love gospel, right? You know, I love gospel music. But one confession that I have to make is that I like a little bit of R&B. You know, and, uh, and R&B really appeals to me. I love the, the lyrics and I love the beat. And if I'm, not, if I'm not careful, I can get caught up, right, in the harmony of, of, what, of the beat and not really pay attention to what's, to what's being sung. And when we look at Psalm 127, it's easy to breeze past 127, right? You know, it seems so short and almost by nature seems rather insignificant, you know. Let me move past Psalm 127 and jump to Psalm 150, <laughs> or something, I'm sorry, Psalm 119. But God is saying something in this very brief, in this short psalm. It is written to be short purposefully because it's the, it is to be easily remembered. And Psalm 127 is a psalm of Solomon, probably derived from the words of, his, of wisdom from his father, I imagine it to be something that David, his father, would have, would have sown into his life, would have given to him verses that were memorized by Solomon, perhaps as a child. Time that Solomon spent with his father like a father does a son. David being a good, good father, seeking to sow kingdom truths into his son's life. Almost to the point where you wonder if uh, David, I imagine David, if he were to live today, took, taking his son out for breakfast, and over breakfast, telling his son, giving his son words of advice. And it's at this point where Sol God, David doesn't leave Solomon out to dry. But David, David tells Solomon as if it doesn't leave him out to dry and gives him words of advice to, to prevent him from going through life as if aimlessly wandering through life without fatherly guidance. And in a world where 70% or so of children are growing up in America in fatherless home, this is creating a crisis where many of us are trying to establish families and are trying to create a home without ever, seeing, ever having seen a tangible example of healthy fathering lived out in front of us. And so many of us are trying to establish our lives, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have a family or no family, trying to establish our lives without really understanding, God, how do I do this? How do I live this life? 
How, how am I going to do this? And, and Solomon, because Solomon, I wonder if Solomon felt the same way, which, which encouraged him to, to pray this prayer. God, give me wisdom. I know I can pray all these other things, God, but give me wisdom. I just want to know how to live right before you. Because Solomon had an enormous amount of responsibility, having to build a temple, a city to keep, a seed to rise up to his father. And Solomon, I imagine Solomon recalling David, right? Telling him to, to look up to God and depend on his providence. And, and in Psalm 127, verse 1, it reads, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Notice Solomon uses the word vain in this short passage. And his use of the word vain is in harmony with one of the central themes in the work of Ecclesiastes. You remember as a community, we went through a series on Ecclesiastes. And one of the phrases we see over and over again playing on Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Or in other words, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, right? Uh, and, and at first glance, you would think that Ecclesiastes was written by Mr. Scrooge. I mean, I did, right, kids? I mean, I thought Ecclesiastes was written by Mr. Scrooge. You know, but, but because when you, when you listen with Solomon's tone in Ecclesiastes, it's like this grumpy old man, you know, just, just pessimistic, ball humbug. Life does not make sense. And we laugh when we compare Mr. Scrooge, right, to King Solomon. But the reality is many of us at one time or another have felt like life was like this. Right? Like life doesn't make sense. Vanity, vanity. What's the point of even living? I went to the movies a number of days ago. I had an opportunity to go to 1917 with uh, Michael and a few other guys. Uh, we went to this, this, this great movie, a World War I film, and there's this scene in the movie where the soldier is running away from, from enemy fire. And the soldier is booking. I mean, it's like he's just, I mean, he's, he's, he's high kneeing. I mean, he's moving. All of a sudden, he comes to a cliff and he jumps off. It's like he doesn't even think about it. He just leaps. And he dives into a body of rushing water. And the rushing water is, is just pushing him downstream. And you see him flailing and gasping for air, just trying to grab some type of anchor, trying to grab onto some type of stability, something to anchor him, something to make him feel stable. And, and some of us are living our lives the same way. Or maybe you've been there. Maybe you're not here today. Or, or maybe you, 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 you've been there before where you felt like you were going through your life and, and you're just gasping for air. You're just trying to grab onto something that makes sense, that gives you some type of anchor. And I wonder if there are some of us in here that are, that are really in reality in a spiritual panic. Right? You know, spiritually panicking, you are gasping for air, or you're busy, 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 working two or three jobs, trying to establish your life, but your goals seem so elusive. Like a home blown away by a tornado that just got built. And it blows away, and you lose all motivation to want to try again. Because you're thinking, what's the use? Your life is lacking something solid. And you're thinking, I need an anchor in this life. 
And, and a number of years ago, the American economy, economy was not doing so well. Well, people were afraid for their 401ks, right? They were afraid they were going to plummet. And so what people were doing is that they were deciding to invest in gold, right? You know, gold is like, they were investing in gold. They were putting their money in what was sodded and secure rather than in paper money. Because gold is a precious metal that can withstand the harshest elements. In Psalm 127, is Solomon singing of his life sound, for he has found something better than gold, someone better than gold. In his life's quest of finding meaning, security, and stability, he discovers God is the only sure thing in life. Wouldn't you rather have Jesus, right, than silver or gold? It's, it's no wonder that Jesus lets us know that not even silver or gold can save us. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth with moth and rust destroy, and where thieves breaks in and steal. Jesus then directs his, redirects his listeners to seek him first. To seek you first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. To seek him first instead of worrying about everything. And if we cut to the chase, here is the heart of the matter. Solomon realizes that what we do in this life is a vapor if God is not in it. Right? You know, if, 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 if God is in, in our pushing, our prodding, toiling, and dressing, busying ourselves from day to day, it is a chasing after the wind. But God is the only unchanging, solid anchor in life that stays the same. Because if God does not have a seat in our lives, all our doing is in vain. Or in other words, it will not last. Or in other words, it's a really bad joke. Right? If Jesus isn't in there, and this highlights this tension that emerges in Psalm 127, the tension between what God does, what we do, and the why behind what we do, which begs this question, how does our work relate to God's work? What does it look like for, 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 for when we glorify God in our work? And so really quick, I just want to highlight three things, and John Piper discusses three possibilities of which I'd like to build upon. Number one, God does nothing and we do everything. Right? God does nothing. We can look at Psalm 127 and think God does nothing. And, and we do everything. And some people live uh, this way by conviction. There, there's a worldview that permeates some streams of thought that suggests that God created the world. And that's it. You know, it's like God is not uh, interacting with us. He's not. He's disinterested in us. And we might even get to, get to a place where we believe that God just simply does not care about us. And, and deism, when we look at the, the, the view of deism, it holds that God does not intervene with the functioning of the natural world in any way, in any way, allowing it to run according to the laws of nature that he configured when he created all things. But on the other hand, you have atheism, right, which doesn't believe that there, which believes there is no God at all. And, and whether you consider yourself a deist or an atheist, you might be surprised to know that Christians, right, have a, have, can, can be at a place where they have a lot in common with the atheists and the, and the deists. Let me explain. Usually when I go to the store, right, I'll go and get, I may go to Walmart and buy furniture, or I'll get a television, and I'll bring it home, and I'll open the box, and like a man on steroids, I rush open the box, just get all the pieces out of the box as fast as I can, and I just go to build it. And, and I'm trying to build this thing, and, and I get to a place, you know, like where I can't realize I just can't figure this out. And, and then two hours later, I have a revelation, right? 
I think to myself, I should read the directions, <laughs> you know? And it's like, you read the directions, that should be the first thing I did, right? And as Christians, right, as, as believers in God, we can be the same way, right? We run into a problem and we automatically turn to ourselves to fix it by default, right? You know, we do everything we can and then we think after we've tried everything, we finally get around to saying, I guess I might as well pray. Right? You know, or, you know, there's nothing else I can do. I might as well pray and read what the Bible has to say about the situation. <laughs> that should be the first thing you do, right? You know, pray, you know, read God's word should be the first thing we do. But we, in essence, can relate to the deists and that we struggle in our circumstances, battling a belief that God is disengaged with us. Subconsciously believing that God isn't going to move in this situation. Or like the atheists, as Christians, our lifestyle can be filled with striving as if there was no God. We, we may be fluent in Christianese, but our lives reflect our disbelief and lack of trust in this God who says, I care about you. I'm in love with you. I'm in tune with you. That if I care so much about the birds of the air, how much more do I care about you? If I know when one hair on your head falls to the ground, right? If you lose one strand on your head, God says, I know what number. I've numbered the strands of hair on your head. That's how much God is in tune with you. And so when we hear Jesus' call in Matthew chapter 6, and we, and, and we hear Jesus call in Matthew chapter 6 to seek him first, right? For everything instead of worrying about everything. It's like we almost scoff at it, right? We scoff at it because we continue to worry about our finances, Worried about our relationships. We strive, we toil, we work hard and create huge enterprises, moving God out of the way. And we revert back to moving him out of the way like a boomerang because we only truly believe what we live. And when we pray, we express our dependence on God so much so that without him, we can do nothing. And Psalm 127, verse 1 through 2, is a simple, it is the simple message we can give for the psalm is that you need God, right? You need Jesus. To go through life without Him is like going through life without oxygen, struggling to breathe because you're not connected to your life sustainer. Vain, vain, vain. Solomon doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that atheists can't build houses or keep cities safe because there's a lot of good atheists, right? that do great building. But when they do, it's because of the help of the very God they deny. And Solomon's message is even deeper and more penetrating. What's the point of the new house of the secure city if you don't have God? I'm gonna speed up just the last two as I come to a close. Number two, God does everything and we do nothing. The other extreme, unlike the deists and the atheists, Christians can lean into the other extreme of believing God that does everything. So just pray and, and trust God and let go and let God, right? The, the problem is we sometimes discuss passivity and laziness with spiritual garbage, you know? And, and so we, we're thinking, man, God's in control. It's like when that big exam's coming up, right? And you're thinking, man, I got this big exam or I have this big test coming up and you didn't study any of the materials in the syllabus and you're thinking, I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to believe that I, in faith, I don't have to look at any material and I'll still pass the exam, right? And for you, faith is this. Faith is being sure of what you hope for, 
confident in what you don't see in the books or study guides. And you're thinking, I'm going to pass. You're thinking you're going to make it. R is the equivalent, right, of driving down the interstate. Uh, imagine Interstate 190. You're thinking, I'm kind of tired. Then I'm just going to go to sleep. Jesus, just take the will. You know, it's like, what? That's not faith. That's just dumb. Right? And this idea, and so we wonder, when we, we wonder whether the verses in Psalm 127 quoted above endorses laziness. Because after all, Solomon is saying it is vain to get up early and go, to late, go, to bed, go, to late, go late to rest. But notice something very important. While it's true that the Lord must build the house, there are still people building the house. Right? There is still activity going on. It's true that the Lord must watch the city, but there are still human beings guarding the city. And God expresses his faith. He models what it means to move in faith. But he doesn't just talk about his love for us, but he demonstrates his love for us. God loved us so much, and he declared his plan to reconcile us to himself. But he, did, he didn't just dream about it. He did something about it. He sent his son Jesus to labor in partnership with God on our behalf and then calls us to live the same way. He has chosen us to be conduits of his activity in the world. As we labor, God is at work. And then the last one is this. It should be something like this as we come to a close. God does everything and we do something. God does everything and we do something. God calls us to do something in this world, to be active, to abound in good works, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And even as we bound in activity, we're to recognize that God is at work through us, through our hands. Matter of fact, this ought to make us more ambitious. This ought to make us more to endeavor to build more for God's kingdom. And, and in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that, that it says this, that it is God who works in us both to will and act according to his good purpose. And knowing that God works in and through us should make us more, not less active in good work, the good works that he's planned for us. And I love what Jordan, Jordan Rainer wrote these words. I recently read the most, that the most visited attraction in Barcelona is not a theme park or a soccer stadium, but it's, a, but it's an unfinished church that has been under construction for more than 135 years. And if you visit La Sagrada Familia, you'll, inst you'll instantly see why the church is so popular. For starters, it is truly awe-inspiring. It is amazing. Before designing La Sagrada Familia, Anthony Gaudi had already earned worldwide acclaim as a master architect. But in 1883, uh, Gaudi, if I pronounce his name right, began to catch a vision for La Sagrada Familia and a project which started to monopolize his attention. A devout Christian, he envisioned a church that would visually tell a narrative of the life of Christ and quite literally proclaim the excellencies of God through its incredible scale and craftsmanship. And as we build Emmaus, as we begin to launch missional communities and move forward in all our different endeavors, let's be masterful in our work. Let's do and serve with all of our hearts. Let's do masterful work that loves our neighbors, right? That loves God with all of our hearts. Let's make vividly clear this masterful work that captures the world attention. That most of all points to God, the master builder, for his glory and for his honor. Let's pray. 
Lord, we uh, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to read Psalm 127. And to, there's so much, Lord, we can learn there. So much, Lord, we can gather, Father God, about what it means, Lord, to honor you, to build our homes, to create, to be robust, to be industrious. Father, but God, let our why be because we want to bring you glory. We want to honor you. And maybe there are those, Lord, who uh, do not know you, Father. I know in our everyday life there are, are many, God, who do not know you, Lord, as their personal Lord and Savior, God. And so, Lord, as we build, as we're industrious, as we seek to, to move forward, oh God, as a community, as a Maya City Church, Jesus, Father, I pray, God, that uh, people will see, Lord, the activity, God, of our community. They'll see that we love one another, God. That we love and live, love each other in, in selfless agape love. And that will that we'll reflect, Lord, the master builder, the master creator of this wonderful community called the church. And they'll say, I want to be a part of that. I want to know Jesus. And so we thank you, Father. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you don't have a church family yet, we encourage you to find a community near you or join us for worship if you're near Worcester. For more information, go to JesusLovesWorcester.com or email us at info at May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.